Refreshing, delicious and packed with the good stuff. It's The Juice with Louise Wilkinson on Newcastle Live Radio. Well, it is March 29th and for me personally, for this presenter, it is a bit of a watershed day. This marks one year of The Juice being on air and it has been an absolute pleasure to present all sorts of different stories from our amazing regulars and from the people in the Newcastle community. I absolutely love what I do and I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Today, however, we are doing a deep dive into the month of April, which is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And the goal of Sexual Assault Awareness Month is to raise public awareness of the issue of sexual assault and to educate our community on how we can play a better part in prevention. The theme this year is I Ask, which encourages everyone to put consent into practice. Sexual assault is a serious and widespread problem, but the good news is that it's preventable. Too often, our society sends a message that sexual assault, harassment and abuse are caused by an individual person's choices and failings, that of the person who has been harmed. We should never blame a person for what's happening to them. Sexual assault and abuse are actions that one person chooses to inflict on another. We need to hold individuals who commit abuse accountable, but we can't stop there when it comes to ending sexual assault altogether. Focusing solely on individual perpetrators and instances of sexual assault, harassment and abuse are often easier than facing the reality that this type of violence is widespread and common and the driving forces behind it are hard to see. Everyone's beliefs, values and behaviours are continually shaped by the world around them, by unwritten rules on how to behave, laws, policies and pop culture. For instance, weak policies or lack of accountability for those who have committed sexual assault can lead to an increased risk for perpetration. This means our efforts to stop sexual assault before it happens must go beyond changing individuals. We must improve expectations of how we interact with one another, strengthening policies to support survivors and promote safety throughout the communities. Today, I will be speaking with the amazing who is a member of What Were You Wearing?, which is an important organisation to bring awareness of sexual assault into the conversation. We're going to be speaking about a panel event that she will be speaking at next Thursday, which is called Confronting Consent and tackles this issue head on. We'll also be speaking with Mel Burgess, our parenting expert, on how we can frame the consent conversation to our kids and our relationships and sex therapist Gabrielle Laurie is going to be talking about what sexual coercion looks like and what the boundaries are just in case anyone needs the refresher. If you or someone that you know is a victim of sexual assault please reach out to 1800 Respect or Lifeline. Refreshing, delicious and packed with the good stuff. It's The Juice with Louise Wilkinson on Newcastle Live Radio. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month and today we're doing a big deep dive into this issue and all about the events that you can attend during the month of April right here in Newcastle to make a difference. Now, here are some sobering Australian statistics, and this is taken from the International Violence Against Women survey. This is the Australian component. 
One in three girls and one in five boys will experience sexual assault by the time they are 15 years of age. Most perpetrators of sexual assault are known to the victims, that is, their family members, family friends, former and current intimate partners, acquaintances, neighbours, the list goes on. Interfamilial, that is within a family, sexual assault is the most commonly occurring, so sibling abuse in particular. Evidence suggests that the risk of sexual violence in adulthood doubles for a woman who has experienced childhood sexual abuse. Aboriginal women and children are up to seven times more likely to be victims of sexual assault, and one in six women report sexual assault to police. Two-thirds of reported cases are actually recorded by police. For incidents of sexual assault that were recorded, that is two-thirds of one in six, which ain't great stats, are they? The offenders were charged approximately one time in four reports. Less than 1% of perpetrators are found guilty. Sexual assault has amongst the highest rate of acquittal and the lowest rates of proven guilt compared with other offences. In terms of adult experiences, the 2008 personal safety survey found that two in five people, or 39%, aged 18 years and over experienced an incident of physical or sexual violence since the age of 15, including 42% of men and 37% of women, four in 10 men and three in 10 women experienced physical violence. One in five women and one in 20 men experienced sexual violence. The proportion of women experiencing sexual violence remained steady between 2005 and 2017 when this study was conducted. However, since 2012, there was an increase from 1.2 in 2012 to 1.8 in 2016. Those sure are some sobering statistics for sexual assault in Australia. Let's see if we can make a difference and join the conversation. Refreshing, delicious and packed with the good stuff. It's The Juice with Louise Wilkinson on Newcastle Live Radio. As we slide into April, we know that April is traditionally the month that we ingest way too much chocolate. It is my favourite season because... The season just clicks over into that freshness in the morning, which I love. It's my favourite time of year. But April has a bigger meaning. It is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And joining me on The Juice today is Hayley Penfold. She is the sex and health editor for Ramona Magazine and also involved in What Were You Wearing? Welcome to The Juice, Hayley. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Now, This is a huge conversation and I'm so happy to be able to bring this important topic to the forefront, particularly heading into April. So you have a a great body of work behind you and one of the things that you're most passionate about is how we frame the sex conversation with our kids. Yes, yeah, I think um, sex education starts with the parents and the way they talk, the parents talk about sex and going into schools and the way that sex education is in schools. I think there's a lot of room to grow with sex education in schools. I think that can be way more progressive and way more inclusive. Um, I think we've got 
a long way to go from just putting bananas on condoms. <laughs> yep. I was going to say exactly that. <laughs> and, you know, and we do like the, the PE teacher stands up the front and, and it hasn't changed in many years. I mean, I'm a bit older than you and I can tell you it was pretty much exactly the same chat. The PE teacher stands up the front. We learn about condoms. We learn about contraception. We learn about the mechanics and that's it. We don't talk about feelings or empathy or consent or any of those really important subjects. And what's really interesting is, and something that I am hugely passionate about, is that in the Nordic system, all of these things are taught in the curriculum and they can't fill their jails. Yeah. Um, I think something that I'm really passionate about as well is taking away the shame around sex as well, mm. even with kids, like just small things like giving, you know, talking about genitalia and giving them the right name. Yes. Instead of using all these fluffy terms when you don't need to do that. No. They're parts of our body. Yep. Just like our arms and fingers, we can call them by their name. I think just small steps by starting with that can make a huge change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, still is around, isn't it? Skirting around the correct terminology and skirting around sex as an act and connection. So your parents, when you were growing up, what was your experience with talking about sex and consent and relationships as a whole? My mum was always someone who was just so open about it with anything. She was like, if you have a question, just ask me. And that kind of really built a solid foundation of me just being like, okay, what is this? Even when it did come to sex or I remember my first like knowledge of sexual assault was watching like SVU on TV Mm. and I couldn't understand what was going on. And my mom kind of explained to me, like, you know, some people like there's, there's more than one way to hurt someone. That's how she explained it to me where it's not always with a knife. It's not always with words. Sometimes it's a different kind. She explained it in a way where she was like, you're taking away someone's power of their body. Yes. And I like grew up kind of like, you know, with that idea, but of course I didn't properly understand it until like my mom shared her own story and I shared my own story with her. But I think a big thing was I was taught in school that rape and sexual assault happens in a dark alleyway with a stranger. Yes. That is barely ever what happens. It's most likely someone that you know or someone that you trust. Yes. Because of that, I went months and almost years not thinking that what happened to me was rape or assault. I thought that it was my fault and it was just a bad experience of sex or a bad experience of sexual acts because I had no idea what it it was called. Absolutely. And, you know, the stats around it, I mean, are quite alarming and – That whole conversation about consent, the cup of tea conversation is incredibly powerful. And it is also a reminder that what might feel good for you one time, you might not feel like that cup of tea the next time. Yeah. So that conversation about consent is just so important. Now, tell me about your work with what were you wearing? So I've been with What Were You Wearing for over a year now. Um, Last year I was helping with the event we did um, at the gallery in Newcastle uh, where we showcased the outfits of different victims, which was a really eye-opening experience. And it was really empowering for 
this group of survivors to be able to create something so beautiful for other survivors mm. to give this space to share their story and make it a safe space. Sarah's created this thing where no matter who you are, what's happened to you, you'll always be believed and you'll always have this kind of support network mm. that when something like this happens to you, you can feel so isolated. Yes. And I think this was like me becoming a part of this. This was a place where I was like properly understood and giving me a chance to also spread what I want to spread with sex education. And it's just giving so many people a platform to do what they want to do to empower other people and educate other people. Mm. Um, so this year I've, I've definitely stepped up with the sex education coordinator and doing that stuff to hopefully one day in a couple of years we can bring uh, programs into schools. Yes, and that would be an amazing thing because the very fact that there is an organisation that's called What Were You Wearing really highlights the issue here, isn't it? Is that in a lot of cases, and as you said, with your experience, you thought it was your fault. You thought it was just a bad sexual experience. You didn't, because of our conditioning and the way that we've been brought up, it wasn't until you got a little bit more education around it that you could call it what it was. Yeah, of course, of course. And I think, yeah, like you said, like the focus is always on what did the victim do? What what did you do to put yourself in this position where it's taking the power away? Your power has already been taken away from you. But when, you know, you finally do feel confident enough and understanding it enough to go forward and someone saying, well, what did you do to put yourself in this situation where it can be something as simple as going to the beach? Yes. Nothing. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, so look, there is a panel coming up next Thursday night and it's in keeping with Sexual Assault Awareness Month and it's called Confronting Consent and you are actually a panellist for this event. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about the event? So the Confronting Consent panel is going to be really exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. It's um, I'm a part of the panel and a couple of other amazing people like sexologists, Um, I think it's just going to be a great way to open up these conversations around consent. It's something that we don't often get a lot of opportunities to talk about in depth. And I think having these different people in the ground of sex and sex education will give like such a great variety of voices as well as, you know, survivors talking about, you know, how we don't grow up talking about consent. We grow up talking about safe sex, but never really consent. Mm. Um, And I think a great element of the night is overcoming trauma and how to, you know, um, get back into having sex, which is something that I'm also very, very, very passionate about. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Look, if you wanted to come along to this panel, tickets are available through Eventbrite. The name of the event is Confronting Consent. The tickets are only $25 and it is Thursday the 7th of April starting at 6pm and you can hear the lovely Hayley Penfold talk on the panel. I'm really looking forward to this event, Hayley, and thanks so much for joining us today on The Juice. Thank you for having me. Refreshing, delicious and packed with the good stuff. It's The Juice with Louise Wilkinson on Newcastle Live Radio. April is Sexual Violence Awareness Month and today on The Juice we're doing a deep dive into how sexual assault impacts us as society. 
And I'm here to dispel a few myths. Here we go. Myth. It could never happen to me. Fact. Anyone can be sexually assaulted. Age, gender, disability or socioeconomic status is completely irrelevant. Myth. Women ask for it by the way they dress. Fact. Having money in your pocket doesn't mean you want to be robbed. This myth takes the responsibility away from the person committing the crime and places it on the innocent victim. Myth. Sexual assault is all about uncontrolled lust. Fact. Sexual assault is a violent criminal act driven by the desire for power and control over another person. Myth. Sexual assault is committed in dark alleys by strangers. Fact. Most victims know their attackers. Myth. If a person has had sex with a person before, it is not sexual assault if it happens again. Fact. Having sex without consent is a criminal assault. It doesn't matter if the person has consented on previous occasions. Myth. A husband cannot sexually assault his wife. Fact. Sexual assault in marriage is a crime. Myth. Children lie about sexual assault. Fact. Children very rarely lie about being sexually assaulted. Statistics suggest that approximately 2% of disclosures of sexual assault from children are, in fact, fabricated. Myth. Men are not sexually assaulted. Fact. Many men are sexually assaulted. That's myth busting on sexual assault on the juice. Refreshing, delicious and packed with the good stuff. It's The Juice with Louise Wilkinson on Newcastle Live Radio. So the Prime Minister addressed the nation with what some might say was a belated admission that culturally we need to change our perceptions and behaviours towards women. And he mentioned in his speech that he was looking at education around consent in schools, and that would certainly be a welcome step forward. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what we as parents can do to educate both our boys and our girls on the home front. It's important, isn't it? It really is. It's, um, and it's important that it starts straight up because there's opportunities dealt to us daily where we can um, have children understand the the giving and the receiving of consent. Yep. And um, when we see those as teachable moments and gear ourselves into those, obviously what they do in schools will overlap, you know, and embellish that. But, yes. But children learn not from being told but from experience. And so having a child that feels that consent does apply to them, both in what they're expected to do and what they're expected to receive, um, yeah, molecularly absorbs that. Yeah, I understand that. And it's it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, we know we're, we're, this is probably going to be part of curriculum, but we want it to be ingrained in them as, as part of their being and part of their way of life. And we can't just leave it to the schools to do that, can we? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's the school curriculum yeah, well, there's, there's so much about that. They they are flat chat. Yes. Um, obviously, it's important. The I would love to see that in the playground and in things that are happening for kids at school that it be consent that they receive more so than being spoken it because it's one thing to teach it in a lesson and sometimes it plays out differently in the child's experience of the power over. So in Circle of Security and in other parenting programs, 
power over versus power with yes. is an important distinction. And we can think when we're at home. There's a really great article from Lisa Norgren that went into The Guardian. Is that something that would be useful here to describe? 100%. Uh, yeah. I have read that article. So, oh, I, good. yeah, it was good. very powerful. So please embellish on that. Yes. Yeah. So it, it describes, and I can post it up on the Love Parenting website. Um, no, not the website. The um Social media page, page, yes. Yeah, and it's really useful because it is a scenario that lots of parents I talk to um, express happens. So they'll be an extended family member who well-intentioned is in, you know, play mode with a child. Often, you know, they're chasing them to tickle them, but they can. the parent might be able to see that the child's not okay with that. And they've, not not comfortable. Yeah, yeah. They've, 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 um, they've had enough of that or they didn't want that and... At that micro level, it's really powerful for that child to be given the opportunity to to have an out. So a parent can say, um, you can tell him no if you don't like that, doll. Um, and so, yeah, if it's not okay, you can say something like, can you back it up? Um, yeah, I'd like some space for my body. But that's, you know, the yeah. first in. And then it's really common in a family for the escalation to be necessary because usually the person doing the tickling is... They're meaning well, but they're not reading the room because they've taught, been taught that um, it's a grandparent's role to play that way or that they're entitled to have fun. But it's really great in the article that it talks through that, um, yeah, the child isn't enjoying it and it's brought to the grandparent's attention that they are asking for enough by what they're saying with their body. Yes. But they're not um, feeling empowered to, to speak it up. So the parent kind of coaches the child to say the things. And then the the thing that irks lots of parents that I work with is that the the grandfather say says, you know, um, yeah, I'll relax. We're just, and whatever comes after just is, you know, normally building the, you know, the, the flood in the, the parent who can see that they want their child to have consent be familiar to them and to live it out. And so they can say, you know, you were playing, but from what I can see, they they weren't. And and then sometimes they push on with, I can play with her however I want, is sort of the, the tone. And so, yeah, having the child see a parent go into bat for them in that situation. And we're not saying that it's, that the, the grandparent is large-end, um, you know, um, in a, being inappropriate, but it's the small stuff that needs to get addressed and nipped in the bud so that our little girls and our little boys grow up with a belief that they, yeah, that their voice matters, that they're allowed and they're expected to say no. Yeah, that's in- incredibly powerful. And, you know, as I said, I read this article and I have a little girl in my life that, you know, it's it's very common for me to give her a hug when I see her. But I've been really wary of watching whether or not, because it can change She from day to day. Yeah. One day she'll run up and hug me spontaneously and then the next day she, she won't want a hug or she won't want a photo taken. Uh, and I've seen some situations where there's been other kids that have been playing with her and perhaps crowding her and she's uncomfortable with that. So stepping in and going... 
just give us some space right from that age. But I agree with you. Uh, our older generations maybe don't look at it that way and they think that there is there is certainly a, a hierarchy and that their needs or their that's it their way of playing and interacting with the child is correct and the child needs to fall in. Yeah. You know, yeah. so changing that paradigm is is certainly something that we need to look at doing. Yeah, and the, the more we can do it without judgment of the grandparents, so, so understanding empathetically that, um, you know, quite possibly it's well intended, but the boundary needs to stay, keeps the, the parents... Um, tone with them to be where they are more likely to hear that boundary and and stop at the first or second or or third ask. Yes. Um, but it's the the power is in what the kids hear. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I get that so much. It's yeah, definitely a necessary thing that we can implement right from them being old enough to understand what we're saying to them. That's right. And and the word consent um, being heard by kids really young means that you know, can I use the the paints? Oh, they're your sisters. But if you get consent from her, then yeah, like let, get them out. Let's play. So that word being woven into their world means that they're not sitting down formally in a classroom hearing the word consent with it wrapped around, um, you know, the, the fear and angst and the where is this headed for this next generation sort of tone, which, you know, sometimes the programs can, can um, yeah, have in them. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And and that word consent isn't isn't necessarily just connected to sexual consent between two teenagers. Yeah. It's something that needs to be interwoven in their lives and and that they can implement from being young children. Yeah. You know, so that's really powerful. It's something that we can do so easily and 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 put into our routine so easily. Yeah. From the time that they're old enough to understand. Well, even, yeah, and they're old enough to understand as soon as they arrive. So changing a nappy with talking them through the the process isn't for the sake that they're going to say yes or no to the nappy change. It's that um, I'm, yeah, I'm here, I'm, I'm intimately touching your body and doing the things and you're involved in the transparent process and, and those things. So just talking out loud yeah. as, you're, as you're, yeah, um, changing nappies, you know, we're not um, – a good example is I was at a training and they they walked behind the participants and they just reached reached down to start to take a jumper off or put a tissue over your nose and um, to wipe your nose. Right. And it's like, what's that feel like? Well, that's <laughs> that's not great. And that's exactly what we do to kids in some settings is we, you know, out of nowhere, you know, wipe their nose – from behind or, you know, do And they're not things. expecting it so it startles yeah. them. Yeah, and so then you learn that your body is everyone's to do with whatever they need rather than it be your, you know, you, you're involved in the process. I had never thought of it like that and yeah. you're exactly right. I think as mothers I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, yeah. um, situations where, you know, all I, all I was focused on was getting that snot off her nose, sure. and, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. and we can, we can overanalyse that but if... Yeah, if we if we for the most part, at least you know, involve come, them, come to the front of them and yeah. and involve them in some way, and it's not about feeling bad for the times that we've not done, yeah, done it that way, yeah, yeah. It's, but it's certainly food for thought, yeah, and that's yeah. amazing. Mel Burgess from Love Parenting, thanks so much for your time. 
Refreshing, delicious and packed with the good stuff. It's The Juice with Louise Wilkinson on Newcastle Live Radio. We're talking about consent, coercion and... Compliance. Compliance. The three C's. I like the alliteration, but there's a lot more to unpack, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about when two people come together and sex is on the table. Yeah, so uh, a good a good key factor for consent is uh, it should be enthusiastic. Yep. Yep. And I suppose some people can get confused. Like I was working at um, the university for their sexual health week and a few students were worried, like talking about, well, what if we've both had drinks? You know, we know that giving drugs or alcohol to someone you know, or buying them lots in the hope of having sex is deemed as coercion. Does that mean we've been coerced into this? And so it, there is some areas where it, it's great to ask questions from an expert mm. to, to understand because some people are going, oh, my God, maybe something bad's happened to me and I'm not sure. And, and, and I guess the flip side of that is as well, I've, I've spoken to a lot of guys uh, around the conversations that have been happening recently in the news, and they're confused about where, you know, where they go. Can they put their hand on someone's leg? Can they, you know, how does that go? Absolutely, yeah. yeah they they've got some confusion as well around um, how do I seduce someone and in the way that's respectful, like and tells them I think they're hot and I like them, but without any anything else. And basically, cup of tea consent video is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's just really clear uh, about what consent is and what it isn't. So coercion is when you when someone says no or they don't really feel like it and you just keep badgering them. It's kind of a relentless pestering. Right, so, yeah. And so the difference between a request and a demand uh, is that a request for you know sexual intimacy the other person feels totally safe and respected to say no right there's no they there's no negative com- consequences if they say no to you so then you know you're not being coercive uh, if there's negative consequences like sulking withdrawing silent treatment anger guilt trips uh, threaten, threatening to reveal photos, threatening to slut shame or to call her frigid. Um, or this can happen to men too. Yeah. Uh, or if there's a power dynamic like uh, someone, this is like a sexual invitation between a boss and a work colleague or a teacher and a student or a, uh, you know, a therapist and a client. Um, yeah, that's the power imbalance might cause someone to comply because they're scared they might not pass their uni degree or they might lose their job or they might, you know, if it's their flatmate or landlord, they might lose their house. So someone might comply, but that's not consent. I understand that. Yeah. 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 Making sense. Yeah. And there are fairly strict rules around in in professional circles around uh, that. Yes. So... We're out for drinks. There's a man and a woman and 
you know, he, she's gone back to his place for a nightcap. Yes. Very common. Very, Very normal. Yeah. And, and so what the guidelines say is that, you know, you can – if you've both had a few drinks and you, you're really attracted to each other and, you know, and no one's incapacitated, mm-hmm. you know, no one's like stumbling, then then you can still consent if you're just in that, you know, tipsy, flirty kind of level. Yes. If either of you start stumbling or, or um, you know... Or yeah, pass the, non, out. the non-professional term would be paralytic. Yeah. I think that's what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or just pretty messy, you know, yeah. spilling stuff on yourself or yep. slipping over on the floor. You know, then consent can't be given. Understand because that. They're, they're, uh, there's too much alcohol in their system. Right. Yes. Got it. Yeah. So you can see when someone's tipsy. And when someone is incapacitated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got it. I got yeah. it. All right. So how should gentlemen or ladies, doesn't matter, how should they ensure that they are getting uh, consent from the object of their sexual desire? Well, you can ask straightforward. Sometimes it's really sexy. Like you can say wow, I think you're so hot. I'd really love to, you know, take you home and have wild sex with you all night. Do you want to? <laughs> Honesty. Yes. Jesus. <laughs> what a concept. Yeah. <laughs> and if if the other person is enthusiastic and they're not uh, in fear of any consequences and there's no power imbalance, uh, you know, things like that, then... If they feel totally safe to say no and you'll still be treating them kindly and respectfully, then, yeah, you can do that. Okay. And I love that. Yeah. Right. In a relationship as well, it can – there is, unfortunately, I've seen a lot of – when people have mismatched libidos and the pursuer distances cycle starts mm-hmm. and the pursuer always feels rejected and unwanted or unloved or unattractive – and the distancer always feels pressured or overwhelmed or abnormal or like they've got to live up to their partner's libido instead of tuning into their own, it can like start out just at an unhealthy kind of disappointing or frustrating level for both of them, but it can turn into quickly into coercion and uh, where the lower libido partner just gives in because they don't want to deal with the... You know, the pressure. The, yes. Yeah. And, and the possible backlash. Yeah. And yep. and their partner might say, well, if you really loved me, um, you'd have sex with me and you had heaps of sex before we met. So why don't you want sex anymore? And what a lot of, you know, high libido partners don't understand, and, and especially if it's a male-female couple, is that the lower libido partner may have had sex a lot when they're single um, but they might have been hoping for a relationship. So if that other person they had sex with had said, oh, wow, yeah, let's have a relationship, then, you know, it they would- wouldn't be um, hooking up with more people. But also I want to clarify the old-fashioned views about 
uh, the Madonna whore and only virginal girls mean are nice girls because it's just not a fact. Like you can sleep with a thousand people and still be really good hearted and really trustworthy and really kind and, you know, a great person. So don't let anyone make out there's something wrong with you if if you've had a fun single life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and don't let them use that as an excuse to uh, act jealous and and get controlling because when when people get into a relationship, women often feel safer to say no to someone they feel loved by. So it's actually a big compliment if she feels safer to say no. It might be disappointing because you really want to make love to her and you miss her, but it means she feels safe with you, whereas... A lot of women just, you know, uh, especially when they're young, just think, oh, well, it's the only way to get love. or mm. And they fake orgasms because they think, oh, well, have to do this, you know, to get some affection or yeah. connection. So if you feel like uh, you have been sexually assaulted or raped, you have every right to report this. Uh, you can report it to the police. Um, you can put, report it to the 1-800-RESPECT or domestic violence hotline. You can report it to RAIN, which is another hotline. Uh, and you can go to your GP or healthcare provider, you know, and get kind of a check. So you have evidence if you want to press charges later or, or tell a therapist if you're not sure. Just so even the being coerced can actually trigger some anxiety in people where they find it hard to trust anyone, Mm -hmm. you know, even if it didn't turn into rape or uh, penetrative sex or anything like that, just it it can be really damaging. So really talk to someone if you've ever experienced sexual assault or, or it's making you a bit scared of sex or yeah, it's not your fault. You don't, you didn't do anything to deserve it. Tell someone. Love that. If you feel comfortable. Okay. Thanks, Gabrielle. Sound advice. And Gabrielle Laurie, sex and relationships therapist from the Thrive Wellness Hub, thank you again for your contribution. Refreshing, delicious and packed with the good stuff. It's The Juice with Louise Wilkinson on Newcastle Live Radio. At some point, some of us may be approached by a victim of sexual assault. And how can we help? Well, here's a few tips. If a person tells you about abuse, known as making a disclosure, it can be hard to know what to do or say. But experts recommend that you react calmly to the information they provide, listen actively, and be non-judgmental. Don't ask leading questions like, did he touch you in a certain way? Or blaming questions, why didn't you run away? Why didn't you tell him to stop? Reassure them that they have done the right thing to tell you and that it's not their fault. Let the person know that they are not alone. You know that this happens to many people. Importantly, don't make promises that you can't keep, particularly around not telling anybody else about this information. And remember that mandatory reporting applies in relation to minors always. If it's appropriate and will not place the person at risk, tell them about your obligation to report. Reassure and support caregivers who may be present when this information is disclosed and make a report to child protection authorities and consult with them before taking any further action. Do not contact the alleged offender. If a loved one is experiencing sexual assault, here are some practical ways that you can support them. 
Encourage your loved one to express themselves. Really listen to what they're saying and don't tell them not to feel what they are feeling because it doesn't help. Help them to explore relaxing practices such as deep breathing or mindfulness, meditation or yoga. Visit websites about sexual assault and services to educate yourself on this traumatic event. Talk with them about what is reported in the media or portrayed in movies, music videos, television series, etc. in relation to the messages that reinforce sexual objectification, particularly of females. That's a huge conversation, isn't it? Talk about healthy relationships. Honour their boundaries. It will take them quite a long time to fully recover from this assault on their bodies and their souls. And never blame the survivors. They have done nothing to make this happen. If you or anyone that you know is in crisis, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Domestic and Violence Counselling Service on 1800RESPECT or Lifeline on 131 114. 